So this article was in Christianity Today and is written by a lady named Doreen Virtue. And the title of the article is, Please Don't Read My Books Anymore. She says she was a best-selling New Age author. Then God showed her his love. And he showed her that her works, in her words, were detestable in his sight. She writes this, As recently as five years ago, I was the top-selling New Age author. At the time, I enjoyed a phenomenally lucrative lifestyle. I lived on a 50-acre ranch in Hawaii. My publisher treated me like a rock star, flying me and my husband first class to give sold-out workshops across the globe. We would stay in penthouse suites and swanky hotels and rub elbows with celebrities. Yet despite this worldly success, I was hardly at peace. In fact, my heart was often broken. For all my new age seeking, there were answers I could never find. I went to Chapman University in California where I earned a degree in psychology and became a professional therapist. From there, I found a literary agent and started writing self-help books for major publishers. This brought invitations to speak at conferences and appear on radio and television where I preach the gospel of self-help. During my 20 years as a New Age teacher, I toured with other best-selling authors. We would promote techniques like vision boards and positive affirmations, believing and teaching that your words would create your reality. Many of us twisted Jesus' words to suggest that God would give you whatever you asked for. And all the while, we held up our wealth and fame as evidence that our principles were true and effective. Yet despite this worldly success, there was something in us that we longed for. We were unrepentant sinners with lives marred by divorce and addiction. Having sold out workshops, standing ovations, adoring fans, and celebrity friends gave gave us swollen egos. But then that all changed for me. In January 2015, I was driving along a Hawaiian road and I tuned into Christian radio and I started listening to a Scottish-born pastor named Alistair Begg on the Christian Satellite Network. Pastor Begg was giving an expository sermon called Itching Ears. It was about 2 Timothy chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul writes that in the end times, people will want their itching ears tickled by false teachers who offer false hope. I could tell he was describing people just like me. God used Pastor Begg's sermon to convict me for the first time in my life. His words pierced my stony heart, and I felt ashamed of all my false teachings. When I got home, I immediately told my husband, Michael, I wanted to start attending a real Christian church, and he agreed, and my life has never been the same. To better learn how to interpret God's word, I completed a master's degree in biblical and theological studies at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. It was amazing to see how God gave me the ability to understand the gospel after a lifetime of believing in a twisted, contorted view of scripture. Having to admit that I was wrong to the entire world because my books were published in 38 different languages has been deeply humbling. Even so, I needed that humility to better learn how to lean upon God. I still feel guilty knowing that people continue to use and sell my old products even though I begged them to stop. 
But these situations offer opportunities for me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray continually that God will use my witness to point other new agers to Jesus. After seeking but never finding peace in new age, I finally found it in Jesus Christ. And despite the storms in my life, my hope and my trust in Jesus is what holds me steady in all of life. Followers of Jesus love stories like this. Followers of Jesus love stories like this where we see God break into a human soul that is longing for peace, that's longing for love, that's longing for forgiveness. And when we see it happen, there's something inside of us that cries, yes. Followers of Jesus love stories like that. And today we will see that Jesus calls and directs a church that we're going to look at in Scripture to live in a way where they would experience more stories like that. Where they would see lives transformed by the love and the grace of God. Jesus wrote a letter to a church that was in a real town called Laodicea. And in this letter, he says to them, if they have ears to hear what he has to say, if they pay attention to what he is calling them to, they will see God move in absolutely amazing ways. We've been in a series now called The Lion, the Lamb, and the Lord, where we're looking at the book of Revelation. And I'm hoping that you found this series so far helpful and encouraging. We're completing the first cycle or the first vision, if you will, uh, out of the seven that are in this book as we conclude these letters that Jesus wrote to churches. There were seven churches that each got a letter uh, from Jesus that the Apostle John wrote and delivered, and we're seeing the final one today. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Jesus is writing this letter. These are Jesus' words. And he says this, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. And then he introduces himself. And I love how Jesus introduces himself in these beginning words. He says, Thus says the Amen. Jesus refers to himself as God's amen. Amen means so be it. And he is saying that I am God the Father's amen. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, he says to this church, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, and I become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. In this letter, Jesus does not offer any commendations to the church that we've seen in other places, but instead he offers a convicting challenge. He gives this church a convicting challenge, and the main challenge that he gives to this church is he says, there are some good things that we do in our own strength, but they have very little eternal value. He says, sometimes we can get caught up in doing all these good things, but we don't do the best things. We don't do the things that matter for eternity. And he issues an invitation to this church to move from doing good things to doing eternal things, things that make a difference. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. I know the things that you do, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What a stinging challenge Jesus gives. This, these two verses are misunderstood by many in the church. And to know what Jesus was meaning and what he wanted us to take from this, we have to understand some things about the church in the city of Laodicea. Most people read this, these verses about being hot or cold, and they think it has to do with emotion or spiritual passion. Like those who are emotionally, outwardly pumped for Jesus are hot, and those that don't show emotion are cold. And that is not what he's referring to. This does not mean or describe our affections or interest level for Jesus. The ancient world would never have thought like that. That's not what they were grabbing from this. They would have taken Jesus' words a little more literally. And this is what I mean by that. If you look at this map, this shows the area of where this church was located. It was located in the town of Laodicea. Twelve miles to the east is the town of Colossae. You may have that may look familiar to some of you because there is a book in the Bible called the book of Colossians. And that book is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that's in Colossae. Colossae was a city well known for its clean, fresh, pure, refreshing drinking water, which was a commodity in the ancient world. They didn't have that. But when you went to Colossae, people were excited for you because you can have some of their water. But because their water was fresh and refreshing and cool and pure, and you could actually drink it. Seven miles to the north of Laodicea was Heropolis. Heropolis was a large city in the Roman Empire that was known for its natural hot springs that would be healing and therapeutic. They were looked upon to be medicinal. And people who were, have ailments would go to Heropolis to sit in the hot springs to, as a form of therapy. And then in the middle between these two cities 
where all the water runs down, you have Laodicea, where primitive yet high-tech for the time irrigation systems that were probably crusted in the inside with lime and minerals would transport water from the east and to the north to the town of Laodicea. Unfortunately, there were moments where the cool water from Colossae and the hot spring water from Heropolis would mix together. And it was said in history that when that would happen, it would create this lukewarm mess that tasted absolutely awful. And if people drank it, there'd be so much minerals in the mixing of those two things that it made people sick. For the people who lived in Laodicea, this was a constant source of frustration when that happened. And when Jesus said this word, these words and he used this example, the people in this town knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And when he was using this metaphor, Jesus was saying two things to this church in this city. The first thing he was saying is, it's important for you to be a good gospel witness. To be a good gospel witness, he meant, he's saying your lives are meant to have flowing out of you like the cool, refreshing, pure water of Colossae. Your lives were meant to have flowing out of you the story of what Jesus did on the cross to save sinners. The gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to come flowing out of people who call themselves followers of him, where people who are seeking forgiveness from God, who are seeking relationship from God, could easily understand it because God's people are putting out by their words and their actions the story of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That he, on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. And all you have to do to be forgiven and have a relationship with him is ask him into your life by repenting of your sin and believing with your whole heart who he is. And Jesus is saying, that's the purpose of the church. And you are to be people that have that witness pouring out of you. The people in this church were too concerned about their personal comforts and their worldly success to mess that up by talking about Jesus and what he did. They were worried too much about their reputations. They didn't want to talk about all this Jesus stuff because people really didn't want to hear it. And in order to make a living, they needed to be pleasing to people so that people would buy their products and Jesus is saying, no, if you're my church, if you're people who are called by my name, you should have pouring out of you the story of what Jesus did on the cross, the gospel witness. The second thing Jesus wanted them to live out is the love and healing that Jesus brings. Like the healing waters of Heropolis, we should be living in ways that bring healing to people's lives spiritually. To the people that God has placed in our immediate circle of influence, we should be pouring out spiritual healing, not just by what we say, but also by how we live. And the church in this city were so busy with their own lives and agendas that that wasn't happening. They weren't caring for those around them that were in need. They weren't setting their lives intentionally to minister to hurting people. 
And what Jesus is saying to this church through this letter in this moment is that I wish you were intentionally living out my father's mission to bring lost people to me. He was saying, I wish you were intentionally living out my father's mission to bring love and healing to those who are in desperate need. I wish you were living soul-refreshing gospel salvation like the waters of Colossae. And I wish you were living soul-healing restoration waters like the, like the waters of Heropolis. Instead, you are doing nothing. You are consumed with yourselves. And you are a lukewarm mess. And that makes me sick because you say you are a church reflecting me, but you're not fulfilling the purpose of what a church is. You're not living out the kingdom. You're not living out this gospel. Jesus' teaching is not about Christians showing spiritual passion or emotion. It's about Christians failing to obey what God calls his people to do in the world today. This isn't a passage about passion. This is a passage about obedience and living out what God wants us to be. It's like the difference between the fan in the stands and the athlete playing the game. It's March Madness time. I don't know about you, I love watching the basketball games of March Madness. But one thing I see as I watch the games and the cameras pan around is you see the people in the stands and they're excited. They have passion and they're cheering. But they're also sitting in these comfy seats. They got their drinks, they got their food, and they're screaming and yelling at their team. They're critiquing. They're saying, why are you doing it like that? They have all this passion, but they're not in the game. They have no idea what it feels like to be an athlete who's prepared hours and hours and hours for that moment. And that athlete has experienced levels of pain and training and discipline that that person usually in the seats has even yet to taste. And the person in the seats is passionate, but they don't know the game and what it, they're not feeling the weight of what it really is about. The church can be like that as well. There's people who are taking Jesus' commands and by the power of the Spirit in them, they're obeying, they're walking that out. But there's some in the church who are like the fans, pointing and critiquing, and all full of passion, but they're not in the arena doing the work. It's easy to sit in the seats and point. It's not easy to engage a dying, hurting world with the gospel of Jesus. God is longing for us as his church to be in the game. What he's saying to this church in Laodicea is you're full of fans. You sit in the stands and you point and you critique and then you live your comfortable lives, but you're not, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, in the arena where you get wounded, where you get stepped on, where you get hurt as you carry out the mission of Jesus. It's easy to be in the stands and point to those in the arena and critique when you don't come in and get kicked around. And he's saying you need to be a church that's willing to get into the game. 
You need to be a church that comes out of the stands and lives the gospel in a difficult place for my glory and my honor. Pastor Derwin Gray says, Jesus wants us to live a missional life that invites others to ask, why are you the way you are? If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, has anyone asked you that question lately? Have they asked you, why do you behave the way you do? Why do you care like you do? Recently, I've been blown away by people in our church family who are living this way. It blows me away when I see a person who is in humble brokenness about their sinful past to the point that oozes out of them this idea of repentance and grace before God, that they can't believe God would forgive them. And they walk that out in a way that's attractive to other people. There's somebody who is sacrificially beyond what you can imagine, giving money to help the church in Ukraine, and they do it silently and quietly so no one would know what they're doing except God. There's someone who called me up and said, hey, will you pray for me? I'm going to share the gospel with a family member. I'm at a spot with them where I've talked to them. They've asked me enough questions, and I want to tell them what Jesus did on the cross where they, and ask them if they'd like to invite him into their life and be forgiven and set free and have a relationship with Jesus. These are the things that we are called to do as a church. These are the things that Jesus was not seeing in this church in Laodicea. And these things are strange to the world. And because the world, when they see this and they notice it, they can't figure it out. This is the convicting challenge to Christians. How do we end up in this place where Jesus challenges us and says, you shouldn't live like that? I wish you'd obey, that you would be what I've called you to be. You see, there's a spiritual danger of living in Laodicea. And Jesus spells it out in verse 17 so clearly. It's brutal when you read it. Look at verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. It's a stinging rebuke. You think you are all this spiritually, but you don't realize that you can't even see spiritual reality because you're blinded by the way you've been living your life. You see, this church in Laodicea was in a city and the city was the financial center of that known world. It was very, very wealthy. It had lots of different businesses. That's why Jesus is using these things like buy gold from me because they would sell gold or find in fire. Buy white clothes because they would sell white clothes. Buy ointment on your eyes because in Laodicea, they were known for this special eye ointment that you couldn't get anywhere else in the ancient world that bring healing to eye and sight conditions. And they made a ton of money selling this, these things. 
They were such a rich city that in 60 AD, there's an earthquake that shook the whole city and they were able to rebuild the whole city based on their own funds and didn't take any money from the Roman Empire to do it, which was unheard of in that day. This was an extremely lucrative city. And the people in this church were well taken care of financially. That affluence permeated the church. And in this particular church, not that having money is sinful and wrong, but in this particular church, that money and that affluence created a self-sufficiency where they were dependent upon themselves and they no longer needed God. Self-sufficiency will destroy the work of God in a person's heart. Self-sufficiency is always opposed to a radical commitment to Jesus because when we dive into self-sufficiency and we think we have all that we need in ourselves and that we can do all these things, all of a sudden we don't need Jesus anymore. And in this particular city, that was the case with the wealth and the success they were experiencing. Some of the people in this church took their eyes off of Jesus because their eyes were latched upon their own pocketbooks and their own ways of taking care of themselves. They lost, they lost sight of their need for God. They no longer needed to pray, God, give us our daily bread, because they found it themselves. They didn't give praise to God when he came through and provided in ways that they couldn't imagine when they had no idea how we're going to pay for this. How is God going to come through? They had no no need to praise God for that because they took care of everything themselves. And they felt like they deserved everything they got. And their attitude made made Jesus speak clear, tough, confronting words to them but also comforting words as well. Look at verse 18. When he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, spiritually rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness and not be exposed and ointment to spread on your eyes that you might see. If you like being sarcastic, sarcasm is something that flies around in the Deroshi family quite a bit maybe in your family as well, you might like this because Jesus is being very, very sarcastic here. He's saying to them, why don't you take all these things that made you self-sufficient and use them to see and look at me? Jesus is saying, why don't you take all that money from your eye ointment business that's making you blind to your real situation and realize there's something greater to see. Jesus is saying you are increasingly unable to see yourselves the way God sees you because you have allowed yourselves to be blinded by worldly success and it made you self-sufficient. And you live in a way where you have no need for God and you don't even see it. Ouch. You have allowed yourself to be blinded by this success and you live 
in a way that you have no need for God. And Jesus now says to them, if that's you, if that's where you are, then come to me and let me help you see. Jesus is giving them, these people that took their eyes off of him and were blinded by self-sufficiency, this gracious, merciful offer. And he says, come to me and I will help you see reality. Jesus is saying, come to me and see where you would be without me. Come to me and, and let me show you what I did for you on the cross that currently, because of your sin that everyone has, you stand separated from a holy God. That if you died in this moment in eternity, forever and ever, you would be separated from a holy God. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sin is placed upon him. And if we repent and believe and invite him into our lives, then we are saved and we get to spend eternity with him forever. Jesus says, let me show you that. Let me take the scales off your eyes so that you can see. If you feel me knocking on the door of your heart, come to me where I can show you rest and peace from your anxious souls. But many did not have ears to hear this. They saw Jesus and his commands as an inconvenience to their life at the moment. And Jesus said, if you keep me out of your life, you will become as useless as lukewarm water full of mineral deposits and you'll be unable to experience God's love and the level I want you to experience, unable to bring eternal refreshment of the gospel of Jesus to anyone and you'll never be able to bring God's healing and hope to a dying world that's desperate for it. Do you think it's possible that Jesus might be saying this to some of us? Have we become way too comfortable in our lives on earth that we live as if we have no need of God? Has self-sufficiency silently crept into our hearts so much that it has blinded us to our real spiritual need that has blinded us to the goodness and the love of who Jesus is? Are we blind to the greatest need that every human being faces and that is the need for eternal life and transformation where the work of Jesus on the cross brings us into the throne room of God? You see, the Bible tells us in order to get to heaven, you have to be absolutely perfect. The only way to get to heaven is you have to be perfect. Now, some of you are squirming right now, and you should, because there's a problem. No human being is perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We fall short of the mark to get into heaven. And here's the deal. We will never do enough good things to be perfect enough to get into heaven. We don't have the power within us to earn our way to heaven. There's only one way in. We need a perfection that comes from outside of us. 
We need a perfection that comes from Jesus. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took the penalty of your sin and my sin. And while he was on the cross, he became our sin. And God the Father poured out his wrath upon his son. And then he gives us this amazing offer that if you repent and come to me, And you say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Will you forgive me of my sin? I want to live my life before you. When you come to him with that kind of humility, that kind of need, what he does is he takes his perfection off of him and he clothes you in his righteous perfection like a robe. And when you stand before God the Father, The Bible says after you die, seconds later, you will stand before God. And if you've done that, when you stand before God, you stand not in your imperfection, but you stand in the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what he did for you at the cross. Do you see that? Do you know that? It's not about what you do. It's about what has been done for you. I never want us to be a church that tells you what to do. I want us to be a church that tells you what's been done for you in Jesus Christ. And all you do is open your hearts to him. We need to open our ears and hear what Jesus is saying to us regarding this. In Laodicea, Jesus is saying, you are eternally poor and you don't even see it or realize it. As followers of Jesus, we must become aware of those times when we are blinded by the values of this world. And if we are not spending time with Jesus, dependent on Jesus, so that his life flows out of us, we may, in spiritual reality, be good for nothing, which will decrease, if not eliminate, the gospel impact and witness we carry in this world. Many in this church have a heart to know God and to see God move. We have to listen to this warning from Jesus for not only the sake of our souls, but the sake of others that we long to reach as well. And you know what the amazing thing is about this? That even though you read this and it says it's like, ouch, Jesus' words hurt, we also see here there's a gospel love and care that pours out of our Savior Jesus in these words. Look at verse 19. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. I love. That's why I say this. Isn't that what a good, perfect father would do? When his children are wandering into self-destruction? And he says, So be zealous and repent This is absolutely amazing. This same Jesus that gives this convicting warning that is like, ouch, does so out of a heart of love and care. And I don't want you to miss this. This is what's so wonderful about the Son of God, that Jesus loves us too much to let us waste our lives. And he confronts us this morning and says, if you're drifting, wake up. Jesus' words were not spoken to destroy us. They were spoken to awaken us. To 
to repent and come back to him. Where his life is throwing, flowing through us by the power of the Holy Spirit and we're living out his kingdom and his mission. Jesus' strong words about being useless will capture the hearts of those who are true followers. Those who are followers of Jesus hear these words and will feel a pain, a remorse, a discouragement, and perhaps they should to turn them back to God. But the Bible says we could be assured of this. Jesus is perfect in all that he does and his criticism is not condemnation. His reprimand is not rejection. Jesus gives these stinging words because he has hope and life and a better way for us to live. Jesus knows your heart. And if you've drifted, the good news this morning is that there's time to be reawakened. There's time to be renewed. Jesus calls us in the last part of Verse 19, to be zealous and repent. Repent means to turn from your ways that you live and turn to God. And when you begin to realize that you have unintentionally or intentionally been living in the land of self-sufficiency or living in the land of Jesus, you're not needed here, that when you hear these words, it is a gift It is a gift to realize this because you have time where you can turn and you can act upon that realization like your soul depended upon it. To turn away from self-centeredness, to turn away from self-directedness, to turn away from self-absorbed thinking where it's all about you, to turn away from your self-sufficient ways and bring Jesus into the center of your life again and ask him to forgive you. Ask him to realign your life with his will. Ask him to come into the center of your heart and he will forgive. He will cleanse. He will bring peace And he will make your life useful in this world for his purposes again. Notice the wonderful promise in verse 21. To the one who conquers, who does these, I, this blows my mind, I will give the right to sit with me, Jesus is saying, on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Think about this. Do you see what he's saying? The people who became self-sufficient and left Jesus out of their lives are told by Jesus that now they will sit with him on his throne. That's grace. That's mercy. The people who loud drift in their lives away from God, Jesus calls them back. And says, if you come back and repent, I will forgive you to the point that when I return again and set up my kingdom, you will reign with me. The work of Jesus on the cross transforms sinners. And you know what? It's one of the most beautiful things you can ever see or experience or imagine. It's like Donna Virtue who says, don't buy any more of my books because there's something even greater. Verse 20 says, 
See, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus bangs on the doors of our lives and he wants to come in and transform us to be people who know him, who experience his love and carry his presence wherever we go. Our lives will not count for eternity unless we ask him to come in and direct our daily thoughts and actions. You know what? I imagine the day that this letter was brought into this church in Laodicea. They gathered like we gather here for church. They came into their church area. And this letter that the Apostle John wrote from the words of Jesus was brought before them. It was an oral culture, so they probably didn't read it, but they'd have somebody come in, and, and in that day in the ancient church, they said that person would perform the letter. The person would speak this letter and do it in ways that they would understand it. So I picture someone coming into this church in Laodicea, this church that was very affluent, that had a lot of money, that probably operated very smoothly without any need. And as they started hearing these words that Jesus said to them, I bet some listened. I bet a few ears started to open. I imagine after hearing these words that Jesus had for this church in this church setting, I imagine a few tears started to be shed. A few hearts started to realize that they once were obeying God and following him with all they have and now they become too self-sufficient. Some probably came to that place where they said, I've not been as obedient to Jesus as I should. And maybe... In that church, when this letter was read, just maybe a few words of beautiful repentance reached the ear of our Savior. Maybe in that moment, a few vows of rededication were uttered from hearts that need God and they echoed in the ear of our Savior and King that day. And for those that did that that day, they walked out of church alive. Maybe God would do that here today among us. I believe God's Spirit is moving, and I'd like to give you the opportunity to hear from God. So I'm just going to give you a time of silence right now. And I just want you to take in all that you've heard. And if God is telling you to have a conversation with him and invite him into your life, that you may know him and have eternal life, do that now. And if he's causing you to rededicate your life to him or repent of some sin that stems from your self-centeredness, ask forgiveness for that now and allow him to renew your heart and bring you back to him.
take that time now before God. Jesus, we thank you for truth and love. We thank you that when you bring words of truth that bring conviction, it's because you love us and you know what's best for us. We thank you that you are quick to forgive, quick to be merciful, quick to give life instead of death. And God, I pray for all of us here, myself included, that we may realize more about what's been done for us on the cross than what we feel we have to do to earn human approval. Will you allow the truth of that to sink deep into our souls? That we would understand how we are made new because of what you did for us as we repent and turn to you. Help us understand the gift of eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name.